But I remember this like very distinct moment where I knew I had to go and get help. So I was driving to a hearing and the hearing was several hours away. And it started to rain a little bit as I was driving to this hearing and I drove by a scene of a car accident. And the first thought that popped into my head was, oh, it'd be great if I could get into a car accident because then I can call the clerk's office and I can tell them, hey, I got into a car accident. Sorry, I can't show up to the hearing today. Wow. That was really the moment I realized, wow, like my anxiety is really out of control. I'm Jack Newton, CEO and co-founder of Clio, the world's leading cloud-based legal software provider. In each episode of Daily Matters, we'll explore what this new normal means for law firms, how legal professionals can find success while working remotely, and how lawyers can best serve their clients during this unprecedented situation. Today's guest is Gina Cho, who is partner at JC Law Group, a mindfulness educator at The Resilient Lawyer, and the co-author of The Anxious Lawyer. Gina, it's an important time to have you here. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Jack. So Gina, first and foremost, how are you and your family doing? Uh, you know, we are hanging in there just like everyone else, um, you know, trying to adjust to the new normal. And uh, tell us a little bit about where you're situated, what, what kinds of uh, orders are in force, where you're located right now. So we are in Sacramento County in California, so we're all sheltering in place. Um, so unless you're an essential worker, everyone should be home. So we are at home. I'm at home with my husband and our baby daughter and both my mother-in-law and my sister-in-law. That's a pretty full house. It's a very full house, yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm glad to hear everyone's healthy and doing well. And I'm curious, what's on your mind most right now, Gina? Um, you know, I think as the pandemic has been spreading, the thing that I'm very aware and mindful of, and I think it's been a lot of our minds, is just sort of how frail our whole system has been. And I think just, you know, there's been so much of our weakness that's been shown, um, you know, just in terms of our healthcare system and our food supplies. And, you know, now we have people that work at grocery stores that are like essential workers and just, you know, there's just hardly a safety net. Um, I guess more so here in the U.S. than it is where um, you guys are in Canada. Right. And it's just, you know, it's just a poignant reminder of just, you know, how vulnerable we all are. Yeah. And unfortunately, it seems to have really emphasized some of those class divides and, and the haves and have nots, even when it comes to our ability to work from home and so on. Right. Um, so, Gina, we're, we've got the good fortune of talking to you uh, today, which is, Mental Health Week in the United States uh, and, and part of Mental Health Awareness Month in the U.S. And, and we want to drill into some of those mental health topics in, in just a minute. But, but first, I want to talk about your, your law practice and, and you, you're a bankruptcy practitioner, which is obviously a really interesting space to be in right now. And I'm curious, what changes have you seen on, on the ground on the bankruptcy front over the course of the, the COVID-19 pandemic? Yeah, you know, we're starting to get those calls from individuals and small business owners who are, you know, at that tipping point, tipping point, they're starting to, you know, burn through their resources and right. asking questions like, you know, should I tap into my 401k or, you know, what happens if I can't service my rent or, you know, my business line of credit. And so they're just kind of at this point where things are starting to get desperate and starting to try to come up with a strategy. 
um, and you know, probably tapping more so into their credit line and things like that. I think a lot of people are just in survival mode. And so we're definitely seeing the peak, you know, not perhaps the peak, but sort of the ramp up of um, people going through that crisis. So are you seeing, it sounds like a, a big spike in the, the strain that will happen for at least some companies and individuals before they reach, you know, a breaking point where bankruptcy may be the only viable path. Yeah, I mean, the interesting thing about bankruptcy is that it helps people who have debt. And so, you know, a lot of people are calling me, they're like, well, we can't pay the rent yet, but they haven't actually started to accrue debt yet because they've been servicing all of their accounts and their vendors and all of their creditors. So it's like this interesting time. And then of course people will start to go into default, you know, people that can't pay their monthly minimum credit card debts or they're having to put groceries and things like that on their credit card because they don't have income coming in. Um, And so I just feel like, you know, sort of work on that road. Um, It was kind of like in 2008, 2009, we didn't see peak bankruptcy filings until 2010, 2011. And I feel like there's going to be a little bit of a lag um, this time around as well. Yeah. So uh, elaborating on that a little bit, based on the current set of uh, uh, affairs for the the folks you're speaking to and the kind of financial straits you you see them in, and, and your experience having navigated the 08, 09 crisis, what similarities do you see, and and how do you think the next few months will will play out? Um, I mean, I do see some similarities um, in that, you know, people are starting to go into debt. I mean, of course, in 2008 and 2009, there was this part of the problem was this loose credit market where everyone was just getting, you know, like free mortgages for everyone. So we don't see that. Um, So I think this time, you know, the credit is just much, much tighter. So I think people's ability to get into debt is going to be more limited. Um, you know, having said that, I don't know how this whole like PPP and EIDL loans and these federal government loans that are going out is going to play a factor in it because I can also see people who either don't meet the qualification for having those debts forgiven, um, who then will, you know, end up owing money to the SBA, which would be a terrible situation to get into and a reason for filing for bankruptcy. And on that point, are you seeing successful applications for PPP and EIDL, or do you have a sense of uh, how successful folks have been in applying for those programs? I don't, because that's not really an area that I deal with in terms of bankruptcy. You know, I do sort of hear in the periphery and being in a lot of Facebook groups with my colleagues that, you know, it just seems like the rollout of those programs have been sort of a disaster. But, um, but having said that, I think the big difference between now and 08, 09 is that the federal government is taking a much more of an aggressive action in terms of getting the money out um, more quickly. You know, having said that, there are so many people that need the money. And so I think just figuring out a system for doing it has been a real challenge. Transitioning now to your mindfulness and wellness practice, uh, we know that COVID-19 is going to have a massive impact on, on everyone, uh, especially lawyers who are, are known to already wrestle with mental health issues. Can you talk a little bit about what impacts you're seeing on mental health in legal uh, immediately uh, what the present landscape looks like and what you see coming down the pike in the next few months? Yeah, I do a lot of webinars for lawyers and people in the legal community and just a lot of the sense that I get, which I think is 
probably shared by, you know, all of us is the sense of, I don't know what's going to happen. You know, I don't know whether I'm going to have a job. I don't know whether I'm going to have a continuing paycheck. You know, I'm seeing a lot of lawyers experience um, furloughs or even pay cuts. You know, there's been a few number of law firms that's just issued pay cuts across the um, firm. Um, and then, of course, the solos and the small um, you know, law firms, depending on your practice area, are also struggling. And I think because lawyers are sort of hardwired to think of the worst case scenarios, right? Like when clients come to us, that's what they're literally paying us to do is to give them all the different range of possibilities. And we get paid to think of the absolute worst case scenario. And we have that tendency to do that. And so, you know, I catch myself doing that where my mind goes into this like what if game, you know, and like the what if always sort of ends up in, oh my gosh, we're going to be homeless. <laughs> and you know, that type of thinking doesn't really um, lend itself to having a good healthy mindset or, um, you know, good um, mental health. Um, I'm definitely seeing, a, you know, it's a peak in um, stress and anxiety. And then of course, there's just sort of a lack of people who are able to provide mental health um, services right now, set therapies and counseling. And, you know, and I guess a lot of therapists are now transitioning to online, but then there's also sort of the stigma in going and getting therapy too. So I think it's multifaceted and um, definitely challenging times. Yeah, absolutely. And in, from the perspective you have, what, what do you, what concerns you most about the, the patterns you're seeing and the, uh, the folks you're talking to in these webinars and maybe on a one-on-one -on -one basis as well? Um, you know, the population that I'm more concerned about are perhaps um, lawyers who, uh, you know, have some sort of a, um, a struggle with some sort of substance or alcohol, um, mm -hmm. you know, who may be on a, a path to recovery. Um, but then, of course, you know, we're all isolated. And so I think just that likelihood of reaching for those tools that, you know, we know aren't effective, but it, we tend to sort of do those things. Right. Um, and then, you know, lawyers who also struggle with depression, we know that one of the factors um, that put you at risk for depression is just isolation and that sense of aloneness. So I feel like, you know, this is like the perfect storm where we're all isolated and we don't necessarily have the support that we once did. We don't have our colleagues, we don't have, you know, contact with our friends or even our family. So I think it puts us more at risk for a lot of these mental health issues that you know, lawyers are very prone to struggling with. So you touched on something I, I think really important a moment ago when you, you talked about the fact that this normal superpower for, for lawyers, which is thinking about all the downside scenarios and all the ways that thing, things can go wrong. And it's, it's often something their, their clients are looking for, which is tell me how this contract or how this plan or how this relationship could go sideways. That, that superpower on a, in a normal world becomes you know, a bit like kryptonite in a COVID-19 world where you can probably find yourself dwelling on all the wrong things. And, and if, you, if you project out what the worst case scenario out for COVID-19 might be, it's a pretty, it's a pretty dark place. So I'm, I'm, I'm curious for that specific issue, do you have advice or, or, or coaching around how to change your, your mindset and maybe put a box around that as it relates to thinking about the, the COVID-19 landscape? 
Yeah, you know, one of the things that I like to um, think about or perhaps suggest is um, recall thinking errors. So a lot of times when we have thoughts, and of course, our minds are these thought making machines, and it's making thoughts all the time. Right. A lot of times the thoughts themselves contain some sort of like an error in them or some sort of an inaccuracy. So as lawyers, we are really good at sort of challenging um, different facts, right? Like, and so I would encourage the lawyers who are out there that's like, you know, sort of imagining the worst case scenario to put the thought on the cross, you know, on the witness stand and like cross examine and say, you know, what evidence do I have that this catastrophe is actually going to happen? Are there all their alternatives? What sort of a more neutral point of view? Um, you know, and also asking yourself, like, what's the best case scenario, right? You know, right. it may be that, you know, the best case scenario is that there's some something about COVID-19 that you're not quite able to see right now that's actually going to help your business in some way, or that you'll find some other creative way of servicing your clients that's novel and interesting, um, or, you know, I mean, we just don't know. There are so many different possibilities that we're, we haven't even thought of yet, Um and also, I think really practicing gratitude, you know, there's so much research around the importance of practicing gratitude, and we can really sort of nitpick at all the irritants and all the things that aren't going right in our lives. Um, and, you know, I remember when I was sort of going through my mindfulness training, my teacher was very fond of saying, you know, if nothing else, be grateful for the shower that you get to take every day. And if you just pause for a moment and think of this incredible gift um, you know, that we get every single day of having hot and cold water on tap right. that's, you know, perfectly to our life. And like, you think of the millions of people around the world that doesn't have that privilege. And so I think really shifting your focus and saying, what are the things that I do have to be grateful for? You know, just having a refrigerator full of food, having people around you that are still, you know, that are healthy. And I mean, we have so many things to be grateful for. So shifting your focus away from all the things that, you know, isn't to your liking or is wrong. Yeah, that's a, a really powerful tool. And I guess can be inward focused and, and grateful for what you have and also being really deliberate about expressing gratitude for others and, and gestures they may, may have made to make your day a bit better, a bit easier. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I'm, I'm so grateful for, you know, just so many people, like the people that deliver my mail or my groceries. I mean, these are incredible privileges that we get to enjoy. Um, and, you know, just taking a moment to be grateful for those. Um, so, Gina, I'm, I'm curious, maybe you could share a, a little bit about your, your personal journey to having done mindfulness training and, and what the last handful of years has, has looked like for you. You've, you've published a book on, uh, on mindfulness and talked about, you know, the, the anxious lawyer. Tell us about the path that led you to, to this, this pretty unique place that's at the nexus of, of legal and, and mindfulness and mental well-being. Yeah, it's interesting. It was like the perfect accident. Um, and I think this is just actually kind of an illustrative of the point that I was talking about earlier. Sometimes, you know, these bad things or seemingly bad things happen in our lives, but it can actually contain some sort of a gift within it. Um, and I've talked to a lot of lawyers or just people in general who share that with me, you know, people who've gone through some life crisis and they say, you know, that's the best thing that could have ever happened to me. Um, but I remember this like very distinct moment where I knew I had to go and get help. So I was driving to a hearing and the hearing was several hours away. Um, and I was appearing in front of this judge and I think 
the litigators out there will kind of know what I'm talking about. It's like one of those judges who was known to be a yeller and he was just not, not someone who you wanted to appear in front of, especially right. on the case that, you know, I knew going into it that I was going to lose. Um, and losing also meant that my clients were going to lose their home. And, you know, that's never a good feeling to have your clients lose their family home. And it started to rain a little bit as I was driving to this hearing and I drove by a scene of a car accident. And the first thought that popped into my head was, I would be great if I could get into a car accident because then I can call the clerk's office and I can tell them, hey, I got into a car accident. Sorry, I can't show up to the hearing today. Wow. Um, and interestingly, every time I tell that story, and I'm sure there will be listeners out there that can relate to this, I'll usually have lawyers come up to me and tell me like they've had thoughts about getting hit by a bus or you know, some sort of like a catastrophic accident, which would prevent them from getting to um, the place that they needed to go. But that was really the moment I realized, wow, like my anxiety is really out of control. Um, I remember every Sunday afternoon, I would feel physically ill. Um, I looked forward to like Fridays, I would look at my calendar in the morning and just feel like I just can't face the day. Um, and I jokingly tell people that I started practicing mindfulness and meditation because I got tired of showering with all of my clients. So not literally, <laughs> but you know, I'd be, half, like, right. be in the shower, shampooing my hair and going through all of my list of clients. And you know, how this client did this and this client didn't follow this advice and how this judge did that. And, um, and so, you know, after that experience, um, I actually um, went and got help. It's a very long, it's a longer story, but, um, and part of that healing and part of the help that I got was actually learning about mindfulness and meditation. And it turns out that anxiety disorders are highly, highly treatable. Actually, you know, I think most of these mental health issues that we're talking about are highly, highly treatable. It's just that there's such stigma against getting help in our profession. Right. Um, and so I went and I got help and I started to feel better. And I realized, you know, these are tools that we really should have learned in law school, like how to manage stress and anxiety. We know the profession is stressful, you know, it's full of anxiety, but we don't get any tools for how to you know, work through it. Um, and so I, you know, I just decided, well, I'm going to start, you know, sharing with people what I know. Um, and part of the thing that made me super anxious at the time was public speaking. And of course, we have to sort of do the thing that we're fearful of in order to get better at it. Um, so I just started, you know, talking about mindfulness and meditation. And then it led to this very unique um, <laughs> practice where now I spend a bulk of my time teaching mindfulness and meditation to lawyers. Right. So you went from that, that place of being fearful of public speaking and not having these tools at your disposal for managing stress and anxiety to, uh, this was a few years ago now, but you, you led a meditation practice for a room full of about a thousand lawyers at uh, CleoCon uh, a few years ago. And I, I remember that and what a powerful moment that was for many of the attendees that, that hadn't maybe ever experienced anything quite like that. Yeah, that was a pretty wild experience. Um, yeah, and it always just I, it, like the lift delights me to no end whenever I could lead a group of lawyers to, um, you know, actually sit there with their eyes closed and meditate. Like, you know, they're practicing doing nothing. And right. as lawyers, we're like such doers. So even getting the lawyers to pause for, you know, six minutes is just incredible. Yeah. If there's anything that's antithetical to a lawyer's being, it's sitting around and doing nothing for, for six minutes. <laughs> right. Uh, so, so Gina, I've received a lot of questions from 
both bar leaders as, as well as law firm leaders that are curious that they're fully aware of what a, a pending issue mental health will be for, you know, either their, their members in their bar associations or for the, uh, the staff and partners in their, in their law firms and they're, they're not sure how to navigate that. They, they know there's going to be an issue or already is an issue, but aren't sure what kinds of tools they can deploy to help people navigate these, these challenges. Um, I'm, I'm curious what your perspective on that is, what, what tools are available? And if you were in their, in their shoes, so to speak, how would you approach the problem? Yeah, I think there's sort of two ones. Um, one is helping the lawyers that are struggling with some sort of a mental health issue. And I think the greatest gift that we can offer to our legal profession is just destigmatizing mental health issues. I remember, you know, when I started having overwhelming anxiety, I, I was very ashamed of it because I thought, oh, you know, I'm a lawyer, I shouldn't have these issues. What does that mean in terms of my ability to be a competent lawyer? What are, you know, my colleagues going to think about this? And, you know, over and over again, I talk to lawyers and one of the greatest barrier in getting help is the stigma. Um, and so, you know, I think, and I think of so many uh, bar associations are now doing such a great job at just talking about it. Um, and I think, you know, we need to kind of acknowledge the fact that lawyers are in, you know, in a human suffering business and, being in contact with people that are suffering has a consequence on your well-being. Um, so I think just being, you know, more open about that and creating spaces where they can talk about it. I think we can learn a lot actually from therapists, you know, who are also in the human suffering business. Um, they regularly have, you know, these peer groups where they meet and they talk about their cases. They talk about what they're going through. They're of course encouraged to get their own therapy. Um, you know, they get a lot of training on things like vicarious trauma and secondary trauma and PTSD and so on and so forth. And so um, I think sort of looking at, you know, these other fields and seeing what they're doing and learning from it. I don't know why, but lawyers seems, lawyers have this an idea that like we, we can't look outside of our profession, but I think it's a right. great thing to do. Even, you know, looking at medical um, professionals like you know, a lot of in a lot of emergency rooms when like a patient dies or some sort of like a debriefing process where you pause and talk about what happened and, you know, creating these, um, you know, areas where we can talk about our mistakes and talk about our failures without judgment, without shame. Um, and, you know, and I think the greatest sort of the best way to do that is to model us. I think we need more bar leaders who are willing to talk about their mental health issues and you know, whatever it is they're going through, talk about the time that they, you know, failed at a case or they messed up or they missed the deadline, you know, just kind of bringing humanity into our profession. Um, so I think that's the one end of it, you know, it's really supporting the lawyers who are struggling with some sort of a mental health issue. And then on the right. other hand of it is actually helping lawyers, you know, thrive, right? So I think there's this expectation that the law profession or you know, being a lawyer should be a miserable experience. There's almost like this hazing ritual. And I certainly experienced it where it was like, well, you know, I had it miserable when I was a young lawyer and gosh darn it, I'm going to make it as miserable as possible for the younger attorneys coming right. up. And I just don't understand why it has to be that way. Um, you know, I think the legal profession, like the work that we do, it can be incredibly helpful to others, right? It could really be a, 
a force for change, force for good. And, um, and I would love to see more lawyers just say like, hey, you know, I, I don't have to be a miserable lawyer. <laughs> you know, I can be a joyful lawyer. I can really love the work that I do. And there's nothing wrong with that. Um, right. And part of that, I think, is just practicing law on your own terms, you know, creating a law practice that is suited to you. Um, you know, being able to bring all of yourself, all of your personality, your courts, you know, so on and so forth um, into the profession. There's almost this like caricature of like what a lawyer should look like. Um, and, you know, there's there's no like one size fits all way to be a lawyer. Um, so I think, you know, sort of holding those both ends together. It's interesting your your last comment around you know may, maybe being a bit more authentic and a bit more real. I've heard a few people on this podcast comment on the fact that this is a an opportunity to show your humanity a little bit more and 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 to and that actually becomes more important than ever. One of the conversations was actually around marketing your law firm and trying to stand out and um, that idea that you need to be you know, a bit more approachable and, and, and accessible and, and, and human was something that really stood out as to me, a, a, an interesting perspective on breaking away from this, this caricature of the, you know, that this almost stoic, you know, can charge through everything, doesn't feel emotions, uh, kind of persona that I feel a lot of lawyers feel like they need to live up to. Yeah. And, and I feel like that caricature or that persona is sort of a lie. I mean, we're human beings and as humans, we're subject to the human condition, which also includes having emotions and having a whole world of inner, you know, inner experiences. And I remember like being a young lawyer and just having like the partner say like, there's no room for your emotions. And, you know, now I kind of like, no, like, human emotions are the thing that drives human behavior. So it's kind of bizarre to say like, there's no room for your, and you know, and and I think clients are drawn to personalities like they are, and you know, and there may be the client yeah. that wants sort of that stoic, whatever armor, <laughs> that right. like caricature of, you know, the lawyer they see on whatever a TV show. But I think, you know, there will be also clients who are drawn to you. So. Um, I think being right, sort of the version of the lawyer that um, feels most authentic to you. Um, and I think also just sort of living that lie of being someone else is also, it takes a toll on you mentally. So for these bar association leaders and, and law firm leaders that may be listening, Gina, and in response to the last question, I heard a, a few things I heard, you know, destigmatize. Uh, mental health issues and, and and be open and share out if you can as as leaders hold up you know examples of of great folks in your community highly accomplished folks um, that may also be wrestling with with mental health issues do do whatever have empathy and do whatever you can to to destigmatize mental health issues um, I heard a call to you know be more authentic and and to acknowledge the fact that you're you're human and actually lean into that. Um, I'm, I'm curious what else you see as, as being in the, the toolkit. Do you see training around mindfulness being a, a useful tool? How, how do you kind of put some of these actionable tools into the hands of your, uh, your members or, or your, your lawyers that are part of your organization or part of your law firm and, and put them into action? 
Yeah, I'm seeing law firms do meditation Mondays, uh, which I love. Um, I think, you know, whatever practices you put into place, and of course, you know, I think meditation and mindfulness um, are very, very important tools. And, you know, every law firm and bar association should um, embrace it. But I think whatever it is to do it sort of on a regular basis, like the biggest um, mistake that I see so many organizations make is to treat these activities is like a one-time checkoff to do your, you know, to-do list kind of thing. And, you know, you can't just meditate once and say, I've done it. Right. <laughs> um, so it needs to be sort of an ongoing thing. Um, you know, I've, the one law firm that I'm working with, they do weekly meditation classes, but they also do weekly yoga sessions. Um, there's like an internal wellness platform where people can share recipes. They can, you know, send out kudos to people that was helpful to them. I'm really kind of creating this sense of community um, and saying that, you know, the well-being of our community, the the well-being of the people on our team actually matters. Um, Encouraging people to come up with their own self-care strategy and sharing it, um, I think is also a really helpful tool. Um, And also just, you know, modeling, again, is really, really important. So if you're you know, the leader at the firm, you can't just say, well, you know, go meditate or go do yoga and not do those activities yourself. You know, if you're sort of burning the candle on both ends and working 70 hours, we can't just tell people like, oh, well, you should care about your, you know, mental right. well-being. Like, you actually have to model the behavior that you want your organization to embrace. So let's talk about the the data behind mindfulness for a moment, Gina. So I, I know there's, you know, probably some skeptics listening that that think the mindfulness stuff all sounds like a bunch of a bunch of hooey and how how impactful could it really be? Um, but you've got some really impactful and and uh, eye opening data on your on your website. So you, you talk, for example, about your eight week program, uh, which has helped legal professionals decrease stress by 32 percent decrease anxiety by 30% and depression by 29%, which are really significant impacts. Can, can you talk a little bit more about this data and maybe the, the, the science more generally behind the eff- efficacy of mindfulness practice? Sure. So I partnered with University of Western Ontario, and um, this was maybe two years ago, um, and the National Association of Women Lawyers and Safar Shaw. Um, and we sort of put out a call um, and it was a free program of eight week mindfulness program. And of the people that were doing the eight weeks, they had the opportunity to be part of the study. And so we, um, the University of Western Ontario did a before and after. And so they measured um, stress, anxiety, rate of depression um, before and after the eight week program. And so what that eight week program entailed was daily um, six minute meditations and then weekly one hour webinars where the participants also were able to get CLE credits. Um, And, you know, these results um, are very typical actually of other mindfulness um, studies that were done with other professionals or just sort of the general public. Um, And so, you know, I think it's proof that these um, programs help, right? Everyone, (laughs) um, lawyers and non-lawyers alike. Um, And, and, you know, I think it's, I think the study um, is very powerful in the sense that, you know, it actually proved um, that these programs actually do work. And, you know, I was really happy to be able to partner with an M100 law firm to be able to do the program. Yeah, those are really remarkable and uh, encouraging results to, to hear. Um, 
So Jeannie, you recently led a, a live Zoom session on mindfulness during social isolation. Uh, can you tell us a little bit more about that, that session and what some of the, the main concepts you, you discussed during that session were? Yeah, so the program, um, so the one tip which I'll share with the listeners um, right now is, uh, you know, we often have this tendency to think of the worst case scenario, like the really unique thing about being a human being is that we can trigger stress and anxiety without any external stimulus. You know, you can like think of the future or think of an argument you had with your boss 10 years ago, and it doesn't matter right. that it happened 10 years ago, you can sort of trigger all the fight or flight action as though it's happening in that moment. Um, and, you know, sometimes I talk about mindfulness or it's saying like, oh, be in the present moment and that'll help you reduce stress and anxiety. But that feels a little bit esoteric. It's like, what does she mean? And I don't even understand what that means. Um, so the practice that I shared is called a 5-4-3-2-1 grounding practice. So to me, this is like in case of emergency, break the glass and reach for this tool. Um, so the practice goes like this. When you're noticing your body going into that stress mode, so you're noticing your heart's beating faster, your stomach tightening, right? Your mind is starting to race. Um, what we can do is actually ground ourselves to this moment by doing this practice. So it's five things that you can see. So looking around the room and noticing five things that you can see four things that you can touch, um, three things that you can hear, two things that you can smell, and one thing that you can taste. And the reason why we do this practice is because by paying attention to our sensory experience, it gets the mind out of whatever the mind is stuck on. You know, we've all had the, this experience of where the mind is just stuck on some thought and you're like, Having this thought over and over and over again, it's not helping me in any way. All it's doing is triggering more stress and anxiety, but your mind just won't uncling to it. So this is a practice that we can do when we're noticing the mind is, you know, it's sort of racing or we're catastrophizing or we're reliving some past event or, you know, we keep seeing the little news alert um, or the Twitter alerts and then you're sort of noticing yourself going into the fight or flight um, response. And um, kind of going back to, you know, a lot of the research around mindfulness and meditation is that through fMRI studies, we're able to see that these ancient practices of mindfulness and meditation literally rewires your brain. So the part of the brain that's responsible for the fight or flight response is called the amygdala. And after an eight week mindfulness and meditation training, the amygdala became less active. So I think what we're collectively struggling with is it's almost like there's a smoke detector in our brains, right? And it's supposed to alert us when we're in danger, like in physical danger, but there is no physical danger. There's no like smoke, but our, you know, that detector is going off as though there's a fire, there's a massive fire. So we want to kind of recalibrate that smoke detector in our brain. So it's not constantly, you know, going off all the time. Um, and that's really what the mindfulness meditation practice does. And more specifically, that 54321 grounding practice. So, Gina, I'm, I'm curious, and it could be this five, four, three, two, one practice, or, or or maybe something new if you've got something else in your uh, your quiver of tools there. But uh, would you be able to guide me and our our listeners through some mindfulness exercise right now that might take a, a minute or two? 
Sure. Yeah. Let's do a two minute meditation um, exercise. And there's actually a researcher, Sean Ecker, who's done um, these studies where 21 days of two minutes of meditation practice is enough to see a lot of the benefits. So, oh, wow. Yeah. So I'm going to just look at my time. So we'll do two minutes. Um, okay. And so let's just start by finding a comfortable seated position. So allowing your shoulders to drop perhaps unclenching your jaws, and when you feel ready, allow the eyes to close and soften. And taking a moment to notice the breath, so feeling the body breathing in, breathing out. Breathing in, breathing out, and one more, breathing in, and breathing out. And just noticing whatever may be going on inside of you and around you, noticing sounds around you. And see if you can allow this experience to be exactly what it is without needing to change it or have it be different in any way. And as you breathe, see if you can allow the belly to soften. So taking nice deep breaths, engaging the diaphragm, breathing in and breathing out. And now let's close the practice by beginning to wiggle the fingers and toes, moving your body in any way that feels good to you. It can stretch if it feels good. And when you feel ready, allow the eyes to open. It's a two-minute practice right there. That was great. And you mentioned that all it takes is a, a two minute practice like that to start to have an impact. This doesn't need to be setting aside an, an hour of every day for, for deep meditation. It can be a small investment that, that has a pretty, it sounds, it sounds like significant return. Yeah. You know, the most important thing about mindfulness and meditation is to do it on a regular basis. I mean, I, you know, I could say that about just about any wellness activity, right? Um, getting enough sleep, eating more greens, um, you know, right. getting more exercise. Um, so it's not so much about the duration of any one specific practice. Um, it's really the accumulated effect of doing a practice on a regular basis. So you know, if all you have is two minutes a day, do that and do it for some sustained period of time and do it for 20, 30 days and see the difference it makes in your life. Well, that's great. Uh, Gina, to, to close out, I'm curious what your main message to others, speaking to them either as legal professionals or simply as human beings would be at this time? Yeah, um, you know, the message that I've been coming back to over and over again is um, being compassionate. I think first and foremost, being compassionate towards yourself. And you know, I find that so many lawyers are so incredibly hard and critical of themselves. Um, and we know that if you can't be compassionate towards yourself, it's hard to be compassionate towards others. You know, you can't, you can't give to others what you don't have within yourself. So especially now, you know, there are so many hardships and there are 
you know, it's just so many things that we're all going through and we're all wearing 12 different hats and juggling so many things and doing the best that we can. Um, so if you're noticing, you know, your inner narrator just telling you how bad you are or, you know, all the ways in which you're failing, um, you, know, you might ask yourself, would I say this to my best friend? Would I say this to my child, right? And really extending that same level of grace and kindness towards yourself. That's a great note to end on. Thanks so much for joining us today, Gina. Lots of practical uh, advice and important insights. Uh, Really, thank you for your time. Thank you so much, Jack, for having me. Thanks for joining us on Daily Matters today, a podcast from Clio. Rate and review wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe so that you never miss an episode. Daily Matters is produced by Andrew Booth, Sam Rosenthal, and Derek Bolin, and hosted by yours truly, Jack Newton. Thanks also to Clio, the world's leading cloud-based legal technology provider, for supporting this podcast. If you'd like to learn more about Clio, please visit clio.com.